0: Hi, I want to welcome everybody back to my podcast this week. It'll be podcast number 23. It's going to be about expecting the worst. The topic is going to be overdosing. This is a gruesome topic, I'll admit, but it is an integral part of this disease. It's something that you know could happen, and it will happen depending on the extent of your loved ones suffering in this disease. An overdose could happen at any time. I shouldn't say that it comes with their deepening in active addiction. An overdose could happen on their first shot. An overdose could happen at any time. It's a a serious part of the disease, and it could more often than not result in death. This is something that you know once they've been in active addiction for a while. You know this could happen. So what is this situation? Overdose. It's something that frightens loved ones of somebody that's in active addiction. It's a constant threat, but you learn to live with it because not everybody overdoses right away, and sometimes it takes a while. It's kind of like, Driving with somebody, the first time you drive with them, you know when you're going to step on the brake and they don't step on the brake at that time. But if you drive with them enough, you become secure in what they're doing and you put your trust in them. You relax when you're in the car, you don't always grab the handle and you don't always grab the dashboard every time a light turns red or if the car in front of you slows down. And it's the same thing with this disease. If your loved one didn't call you today, you don't say they're dead. You just figure that's part of the disease. If you have any knowledge of the disease, you learn how to deal with the inconveniences of the disease. And at this point, there are inconveniences that result in trauma on our part the family members, the loved ones of those that are in active addiction. They don't always consider us, even though they do love us. What do I mean by that? Well, they love us. Once they're in active addiction, their thoughts aren't on us. Their thoughts are getting their drug. How do I get my drug? When am I going to get my drug? I feel sick. Oh, I'm cramping up. I hope this cop isn't going to pull me over. I'm going to buy drugs. I got money in my pocket. I hope this guy coming up behind me isn't going to steal my money. They have all these things on their mind, and to them, that's their way of life. So they don't see anything wrong with how they're thinking. We do. And we're nervous and we're hoping they're not getting killed. But we get up and we do our shopping and we do the house cleaning and we go to work and we, through our natural routines, in the back of our minds, we know that at any time there could be a call and we know that our loved one could overdose. we got to learn to deal with that. We don't stay in a constant state of panic. The phone calls. It's not usually the police calling to tell you that your loved one has collapsed and they're in the emergency room and can you come down. They're not calling to tell you that your loved one is dead. It's probably a friend or it's probably a relative calling to see how things are going, if everything's all right, if you're all right, if you're holding up. Because they know you are dealing with a significant situation that's altering your way of life. And they're trying to give you comfort. So they're calling. You begin to learn how to live with the thought that an overdose could happen and it becomes a way of life for you. So you don't walk around going to work and you can't work because... You're waiting to get a call that somebody overdosed, or your loved one overdosed. It's kind of like arthritis. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's not a good correlation. It's like knowing that the heat's going to go off at 7 o'clock in the winter time, so you have a sweater and a blanket on the couch while you're watching TV and relaxing if you live in an apartment complex because there too, the landlord doesn't care how you feel after seven o'clock. If that's when the legal time that they can turn off the heat is, they care about making money. And your loved one doesn't care about what you're thinking when they got to get fixed. They care about getting fixed. And it's not that they don't love you. Well, your landlord sure don't love you. Your landlord loves the money and the income, but your loved one loves you. They're just have no concept of what right or wrong is and what to do at that time. Their concept is, I got to get fixed. I'm going to get sick. My life is to get fixed now. Yes, there are certain things that you build up. I would call it a defense mechanism. So you don't live in constant fear. That expectation is somewhere in your brain. And there is an expectation that one of those phone calls could be somebody calling to alert you to the fact that your loved one has overdosed. Things are out of a range when you worry more. So like if the phone rings at six o'clock in the evening, it could be another loved one or maybe a daughter or a child or a son calling to tell you that they're on their way home from work and they ask how you're doing and is everything okay and you're asking them the same questions how are they doing is work okay is this good and you want to hook up tomorrow we can go shopping we'll get together and uh, everything will be great but let's say you get a call at 10 o'clock at night and you usually get ready for bed about 9.30 and the phone rings at 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock. Well, where's your mind gonna jump? Let me ask you that question. If you get a call out of usual time and you have somebody that you love, in active addiction, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The First thing that's gonna come to mind is what happened? Is he okay? are they alive? I, I always jump to him, and I shouldn't, because I had four daughters. Talk about stress. Yes, your mind's going to go to what's wrong. Why am I getting a call at 11 o'clock? You're not going to ask yourself that, chances are, but your mind is going to go to that part of the brain that's going to deal with that. you got to learn how to deal with that. Eventually, you build up a defense mechanism in your brain when it comes to dealing with that but it's always there that thought when something unusual happens you're going to wonder what's going on you got to learn how to deal with that that expectation that something could happen is greater after hours let's put it that way if your normal hours are let's say nine o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock at night, and something happens at seven in the morning, you get a call, it's usually something's wrong in your mind for sure. And if something happens after nine o'clock at night, there's a possibility in your mind you go into stress. That's a normal reaction. You got to learn to deal with that too if it's a relative calling not reeling. I mean, my sister goes to bed about two o'clock in the morning, and she gets up at 11. She's retired, and that's how uh, she does her best work at night. She likes to read. She likes to watch the news, and there's no interruptions at that time, and she's by herself. Her husband has passed away. That's how she deals with her stress. She reads a lot, and she doesn't get interrupted after 11 o'clock in the evening Uh, she has time to herself and that's how she deals with her stress she doesn't have anybody in the family that deals with the disease of addiction if i call her at 10 o'clock it's all right Uh, thank god they have on tvs now uh, identifications on a lot of the cables Uh, company, so she could see it's me. So I don't hesitate to call her. But uh, she also doesn't have anybody in her immediate family that suffers from this disease. I did. When I got a call at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, my mind jumped. What happened? Is she alive? I hope everything's okay. And I would jump on the phone. My wife would go to bed earlier than myself. I would try to get to the phone so if something did happen, I could wake her up and we can go to the hospital, see if she's still okay, and if not, I could break it to her gently because they don't have time to. They get on the phone and say, your daughter is, uh, if you want to see her, get over here quick, and then they got other things to do, and their job is not to deal with us. Their job is to notify us, so... As the disease progresses, it gets worse. You're more apt to get a phone call. You learn how to deal with situations, negative situations. It becomes easier to deal with these panic situations. Occasionally, you get a phone call and it is a negative call. So what do you do? It's a sickening feeling. You don't always answer in a rational mode. What does that mean? The rational mode. You get a call at 1130 at night. You got an unfamiliar voice on the phone. So you say, hi, who am I speaking with? And they say, this is officer so-and-so. There's been a situation. Your loved one, we found them unconscious on the street and we took them to the hospital Uh, if at all possible could you come down they're in serious condition we'd like you to answer some questions we'd like you to come to the hospital to see them they're not in good shape they're not dead they're still alive so come down as soon as you can the doctors are working on them they're doing everything they can and hopefully they'll be all right we don't know right now and that sick feeling rises from your toes and comes up to your head and you got to deal with it and you got to try to get there if you want to see your loved one because you don't know you don't know if they're going to make it and that's a sickening feeling and that's a hard way to drive and you're thinking maybe they didn't want to tell me that they're no longer with us Maybe they didn't want to tell us that they overdosed and they're dead because I have to drive, let's say, 20 minutes to a hospital to see what the situation is. You've got to try to keep your cool, and especially if there's someone else involved in the situation, such as a husband or a wife, somebody has to maintain their cool and somebody else has to drive. But let me tell you something. You're not going to be yourself when you're driving, and hopefully you're going to get there safely. And that's one of the idiosyncrasies of this disease and finding out that there's been a negative situation, such as an overdose. And what do I mean by that? You're going to get into a moving vehicle, which is potentially a weapon. What do I mean by that? I mean a car can kill people. And if you're not rational behind that wheel, you're driving a weapon. And you're no less destructive than somebody who's pointing a gun at somebody who's not rational. So you've got to try to stay calm. And you've got to try to control whoever's going with you. And if nobody is at the house, sometimes it's good to call somebody. If you have a close relative, if you have a close friend, you can call them up and say, look, I just got a terrible call. My uh, loved one overdosed, and I have to go to the hospital, and I'm really shook up. Do you think you could come or drive me? I don't call somebody in Connecticut if you live in New York. I mean, try to get a neighbor. Try to get somebody that you're friendly with. Try to get a family member. No. Try to get there as safely as you can because you're no good to your loved one. If you're coming in on a stretcher, you got to use common sense and you got to use judgment. Worst case scenario, don't drive. Call a cab. Have the cab take you to the hospital because, like I say, you're dealing with a deadly weapon, and a car is a deadly weapon. Cars kill a lot of people. So catch your breath, sit down for a few minutes, and whatever's gonna be is gonna be. If they have already passed, there's no rush. And I I don't mean to say that in a cruel way, You getting hurt and possibly killed is not going to help a situation. You got to use your judgment. If you think you can drive, great. Get in the car as soon as you can. Get dressed, get in the car, and go. When you get there, try to maintain your senses. Don't scream, don't yell. Just go in there, and if they're conscious, try to talk to them and say, look. This is a warning, and we gotta get you help, and you gotta get you help. You got people who love you and people who care, and we gotta talk about getting you in for treatment because you came very close to not coming home again. Always try to encourage and never try to destroy. And when I say destroy, I mean calling somebody an effin' idiot Look what you did. You almost killed yourself. What's wrong with you? You have no brains and this and that. That's negative conversation, and that's going to do more to hurt than to help. So, yes, I know you want to stand there and maybe punch them out for being so stupid to use these drugs. It's a disease, and remember that. They can't help themselves at this point when they're in active addiction they're in survival mode, and they're doing what's going to stop them from getting very sick. They do what they have to do to survive, just like we do what we have to do to survive. It's not, it's not, and I repeat it again, it's not that they're doing something to hurt themselves intentionally, and it's not that they're doing anything at all to hurt you. They love you. It's been my experience that even when I spoke with people that families had cut ties with, they cry, and they wish they could make amends and get back with their family. And I always encourage them and say, look, time heals all wounds, and people don't come up with these sayings just to have something written. It doesn't say, time heals all wounds, and Joe shit the rag man said that and he wants you to call him up and tell him how smart he is these things come with time and experience it's like the big book a guy named joe didn't get up in the middle of the night and couldn't sleep and wrote a book the big book came from experience you got to encourage your loved ones to get help and you got to try to build a little bit of their self esteem up encourage them and let them know that they can do it it's it's something that's doable people do it they can do it they're strong they're good they got a good heart they they're loved they have people who care about them and love them and we're going to try to get you into treatment i don't care how many times you've been in treatment Maybe this will be the time that gets you back on your feet and you can come back into the fold. These are things you got to keep in mind. Possibilities are that at that time they're scared, they're frightened. They got maybe a tube down, a breathing tube. But they're getting aspirated so that they don't inhale their vomitus if they're throwing up because, believe it or not, Uh, a lot of addicts use and throw up if it's opiates. Opiates have a tendency to get people nauseous and they throw up and they use and throw up. Believe it or not, they enjoy that too. There's nothing about getting high that they don't enjoy. It's the life that they begin to hate. It's the living on the street. It's the stealing. It's the Uh, having to get the drug, it's the people that they come in contact to get the drug, it's it's the horror of the life they're living that they hate, but the actual act of getting high feels good, although they're always, they they have that saying, chasing the dragon, they're always chasing the dragon, and they're always looking for that great high, that's why they're out there. The possibilities, when you get to the hospital or that you're going to find your loved one with tubes in them and it's a horrible scene and there's going to be crying and you're going to try to hug them but you can't even do that because of the tubes and the masks. So just try to convey to them that you love them and try to convey to them that you're there to give them support and you're going to try to get them help, and that they have to want to help, but you're there to help them. And this is definitely not the time to vent. It's not the time to show anything but love and give them support if they're conscious. And it's time to ease their feelings because they're high, maybe they might have thrown up and gotten rid of some of the highness that maybe the uh, well that's very silly of me uh they've been given narcan if it's an opiate and they're probably in withdrawal and can't wait to get out if they can get out but chances are if they came that close to death they're not getting out that night but they'll be treated so that they don't go into deep withdrawal and get sick because truthfully, they don't want them sick, they don't want them throwing up, and they don't want them screaming and disrupting other patients. There's potential for admission into a psychiatric ward, there's potential into an addictive ward if the hospital has one. They'll be given drugs to bring them down and keep them from going into total withdrawal. You have to deal with you at that time because you're actions and 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 your instincts are to yell and to what did you do you know what you did to me you know what you did to your loved ones you scared us so much how can you do this to us but it's not about you at this time if they're alive you just lost somebody and they know it and they don't want to hear from you about you know yelling and screaming and they just want to lay there and they want to get some kind of semblance of normalcy so try to control yourself try to give support if they're coherent try to tell them about how they got to get help at that point it could be going in one ear and out the other so if they get up the next day and they're released and you go to get them and they're not there Don't be surprised, because they're in another world. They're living in the world of addiction, and you're living in the world of saneness or rational thinking, or are rational thinking, because in their world, they're doing the right thing. They're going out to get high. Give it a chance. The other possibility is you get to the hospital, and I don't say this coldly. If I'm sounding coldly, I apologize, but you get there, and they're dead. It sounds callous again but you got to start thinking about making arrangements. You got to deal with the police. You got to answer questions they're going to ask you if you knew they were using if you're this if you did that if Did you ever support them? Did you give them money to buy drugs? Did you get them help? How long were they using? And did they ever go into treatment? And do you know who they were with? Did you know who they hung out with? They're going to ask you all these questions and you're not going to be in the mood to answer these questions. And you're going to be in fear of answering the questions. Are you going to get involved? Uh, And most of all, you're going to be totally, totally, totally devastated. You just lost your loved one. If it's a child, it's it's a horrible thing to deal with. I mean, the natural course of nature is that children bury their parents, which is okay. I mean, you get to a point and you pass and that's natural causes and uh, nobody lives forever. So, it's okay if your kids have to bury you. That's part of nature. But when you have to bury a kid, it's, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. There are circumstances that control you in different ways. And what do I mean by that? When my daughter passed, I knew that it could happen. I was devastated. But I didn't feel the full effect of her passing for a long time. I was able to talk, I would come close to tears, but I, I believe it, it. my grief matured. And What do I mean by that? I mean now when I talk about it, it bothers me more than when it first happened. I might have been in a state of shock. We found her in her room lying in her bed. She had somebody from where she hung out uber her some meds. I don't know if it was pure fentanyl or if it was her heroin dose that was cut with fentanyl, but something got her. I heard her talking about how when you relapse, you go back to where you left off before you went into treatment, and she hadn't been in treatment. She had been in jail, and this was a girl who graduated college, magna cum laude, and she was an excellent, well, I'm not going to say excellent, but she was a very talented chef. She worked at fine restaurants. She could have been something. She never gave herself the chance. It was almost like she didn't think she deserved to be talented. We found her slumped over in her bed. She must have died sometime during the night. Rigor had already started, and uh, I tried giving CPR, but it was very hard to do. But when the paramedics got there, they said that she had already passed previous. My wife and I were both devastated. We were crying, but I didn't feel the real pain and the grief for a couple of months. And at that point, I would see a picture of her and I would break up. Everybody reacts differently to that situation, so don't don't feel bad if you don't react the same way that other people do. Everybody has their own way of expressing their emotion. Don't feel that you're not expressing your emotions right. You're expressing your emotions the way you feel, and you shouldn't express your emotions for somebody else. You should express your emotions for you. And if you need grief counseling, by all means, there are places out there, there are uh, churches, and there are synagogues, and there are clergy people, and there are therapy sessions that'll do it for free. So get help. You gotta deal with it and If you come the next day and your loved one is there and remorseful, perhaps this is a good time. Perhaps this is a time to speak to them about getting help. And perhaps they've just been scared enough to want to get help because that's the important thing. If they want to get help, there's help for them. Whether you have insurance for them or whether they have their own insurance or whether they go to a county or a city facility, there's help for them. And usually the help is okay if they want to be helped. And it's what they make it. It's not the facility so much as their willingness to accept the help and to go to meetings because people I speak to that are back in treatment and they've relapsed, I I can't think of anybody in particular that said that they worked the perfect program and they relapsed anyway. 99.9% of people who relapse stop working a perfect program or stop working their program altogether. There's no reason to stop. I mean, it's there for you. You got tutors think about going to school and not doing well in math. Family had to hire a tutor for 50 or 100 dollars an hour. Look what I'm doing to them. This is free tutoring. You got a sponsor. You got a support group. If you went to a facility that had a family night, you can continue going for free, and there's a therapist there to discuss things with you. Give it a shot for the people who have a loved one that just passed, there's help for you. For people who survived the overdose, there's help for you. There's help out there. This is a big epidemic. Everybody talks about the epidemic. In the meantime, I'm trying to find a place. I just recently moved to Pennsylvania. I'm trying to find a way to give volunteer work to help people, and I'm having a hard time finding a way to volunteer, but I'll get it. I don't give up easy. I want to thank you all for attending this podcast, and I want to hope that you never have to use the information that I've given you. I want to give you some information. The name of my podcast is Addiction in the Family Now What? If your loved one wants to go in and get help, and you're not sure if a treatment center is up to snuff, if you've been there to visit it and it doesn't look right, there's ways to check out their treatment records. Uh, you call SAMSHA, S-A-M-H-S-A. You could call them. Their phone number is 1-800-662-4357. If you don't like their credentials, you can uh, ask SAMSHA for another place. If you know somebody that's hearing impaired, you can give them the hearing impaired number for SAMHSA, one 487 4889 They could text SAMHSA at samhsa.gov. Uh, for those who have loved ones that are suffering from the disease, you need help, too, and you need support. There's Naranon, for those who have loved ones suffering from narcotics addiction. It's a 12-step program. It's free. You can donate if you want. You could bring food, not food, but you could bring donuts or something to the meeting. It's called Naranon. It's a 12-step program. You just Google it, and it'll tell you where the meetings are. And if your loved one suffers from alcohol addiction, it's Al-Anon, which is also uh, a 12-step program. SAMHSA will give you information on those programs. Uh, You can Google them, and they're all over the place. You can find a place if you don't like. give, Give yourself six meetings. If you don't like the meetings in one place, go to another place. If you have young ones, there's Alateen. And Nora Teen, and that's for kids, teenagers. There's help for all ages. Don't be deceived by age. I mean, five-year-olds know that there's trouble in the family when there's addiction in the family. You can ask and get help for them, too. I want to give you address again. Now addictioninthefamilynowwhat at gmail.com. And... Uh, I want to thank you for listening. You could uh, write your questions. If you have any questions, write them down. Or you can uh, put them down on the podcast. There's a space for your questions at the podcast site that's uh, available. On the website, there's uh, QR sites that'll get you there. I want to thank you for coming. Have a wonderful week. I'm going to try to do another podcast in a week, a week and a half. Take care. Bye.